I, I, many people think I'm a terrible person now, and who am I to dispute it? But uh, by comparison with, with, with now, I was much, much worse. What did you do? I'm not telling you. Why not? Because it's none of your business. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello, you're listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I am the editor of Premier Christianity magazine that sponsors this show. And I'm pleased to say that my guest here on The Profile today is Peter Hitchens. Peter is a journalist, broadcaster and author. He's currently a columnist for The Mail on Sunday. And he's also a former foreign correspondent in Moscow and Washington. He's a popular political commentator and the author of a number of books, including The Rage Against God. Peter, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here so far. So far. We'll see how we go. I was going to describe you in that introduction as outspoken or even controversial, but I stopped short of doing it because I thought you might object to that. Would I have been right to call well, you those things? I object things? to it. It's, it's partly it's a bit of a cliche. What does it mean? Um... I, I, I don't think it really means anything very much. Uh, if you attract attention, it's not necessarily because you deliberately intended to attract attention uh, or that you, you, you wanted it to be that way. Sometimes it's just if you say certain things, people are more than usually interested or, in my case, more than usually hostile. Why do you think that is? Well, I'm a survivor from another age, and I think that increasingly the way in which I was brought up clashes with the way in which other people think, the way that I think is normal and indeed moral to behave, and the way I think is normal to think are increasingly outlandish to people educated since what I think we probably should call in the plural the revolutions which transformed Western society from the late 50s onwards. I'm pleased you mentioned um, your upbringing and the way you were educated because here on the show we we like to go back to the very beginning and hear about a person's early life growing up. So can you tell me a bit more about what early life was like for you, where you were, was there any religious or political uh, leanings in the water from an early age that influenced you? Describe it as fundamentally as free-range, organic. Uh, My brother and I were both left very much to our own devices from fairly early age and used to run about the streets with other boys whose names I can't remember and whose identities I can't even guess at, just uh, in sort of gangs uh, during the school holidays. The the school terms were totally different. Uh, We went, I went, we both went to various boarding schools uh, where life was really, uh, I suppose, an attempt to recreate the 1930s. Uh, we were still very much brought up in uh, in Christian patriotic traditions, quite um, quite beset by rules about what you should or shouldn't do, um, surrounded by other people with the same sorts of backgrounds and upbringings as ourselves. Uh, it's partly because my father was in the Navy, so armed services tend to be more conservative than the societies around them, partly because at that particular moment when I was growing up in school, the last traces of wartime privation were coming to an end, rationing had stopped, although it's still the shadow of it still lay over the land. And my mother, for instance, would, would never cook an egg without running her finger around the inside to get the last bit of it out and was very careful what she bought at the butchers and things like that to, not to get short short measured and she would always if she ever she bought a Mars bar she would cut it up uh, because she was used to doing that to sharing it out it was those things still lay over us and of course they they'd been through the war I, my my mother had been through bombing raids my father had been on the on the convoys between Scarpafloor and Murmansk in North Russia which were the worst journey in the world as Winston Churchill put it and other, they'd lost friends and they'd lost people very close to them indeed during that time and they'd seen their lives transformed. So that hung over it and it, was, it wasn't it was all that much mentioned but you were very conscious of it. To us it was a, a sort of game that our parents had been involved in. The toys we played with, the games we played were very much uh, dominated by it. So those those are the characteristics. We were left alone a lot in the holidays and in, in, in school time we were introduced to the, the mores and and behaviour of a country that actually largely ceased to exist outside where we were. 
So in terms of, um, I know in terms of your, your faith, you, you mentioned there wasn't a lot of Christian faith at home, but that really came, Very through, little at home. came through school mainly, didn't it? Oh, completely, yes. So there's no question. We were, we, we were, we were given uh, lessons in, uh, in the Bible. And when I say the Bible, I mean the Bible, the authorized version. Uh, we were taught uh, large parts of it and the stories of it became familiar to us. We had a daily uh, religious services at the beginning of the day. Uh, and short prayers at the end of it, and on Sundays we would have a pretty much uh, a slightly shortened, I suppose, version of uh, prayer book morning prayer. With a, and every day we would sing hymns, uh, the, the the basic familiar hymns, ancient and modern. Which it, to me, I'm astonished that these are not as familiar to other people as they are to me. Because apart from anything else, they they're such a tremendously powerful way of instilling into you a certain. Uh, idea of looking at the universe, which I, which I've never really lost. So yes, there was a lot of it at school, but at home it tended to be, um, it tended to be put to one side. I, my my father, I think, had had quite enough religion in his childhood to last him several lifetimes, and my mother had been brought up in such a way that she wasn't really very interested in, in yeah. it at all, as I now know. I didn't know that at the time, but that could be why it didn't really have much yeah. of, of a role at home. What you've just described of singing hymns in school, you know, that, that's a very long way away from most people's experiences of school today. Oh, I know that now. Um, but, of course, you always think when you're growing up that, you're, that your own life is, is normal and course, everyone else yeah. is living the same way. It had dawned on me sometime afterwards that, in fact, I, <laughs> I, I'd been having an exceptional but, but do um, you, experience. But do you wish that that was more prevalent in today's Educational system. Well, I, you could wish it if you wanted to. It would be futile, wouldn't it? It wishes for horses. I, it, I think a lot of people have, have missed something very important. I think to have as the background of, of the music of your life hymns such as Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise, or Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of Creation, would be better for you in many ways than the sort of rubbish which now seeps out of, uh, out of radios and televisions and, and office Music and lift loudspeakers, and it is, the, it is now the background music to people's mm. lives. I think it is better, uh, in both in terms of literacy and musical quality, and I also think it, it puts into your mind sentiments which you'd be better off having than the largely sort of self-pitying, selfish ones which popular music tends to spread. And of course, although you say it was good for you growing up, like many teenagers, you left it behind, uh, became an atheist, and and that's a very common story, isn't it? But well, it's a cliche. It's 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 such a cliche. It's boring. I, I don't <laughs> know. It doesn't. Well, I was any, say, anybody well, who doesn't go through this sort of <laughs> moment of, oh well, uh, perhaps all this is rubbish, seems to me not to have been paying attention. You you you're bound to be tempted by this, uh, and then what used to be the case, you would then grow up and realise that actually uh, you hadn't been quite so clever in your teens than you thought you were. But <laughs> now, uh, that doesn't happen. People don't have the, the 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 first epiphany and the second epiphany. They only have the first one. And that's assuming they had a religious upbringing in the first place. The real problem for uh, for conservative and and Christian ideas in our society is that most people have never been introduced to them at all. Sure. Never been inside a church, wouldn't know what to do if they did. Yes, but for your story, that that age of fifteen, you know, I've I've read read the story of you burning a Bible. Um, well, I tried to burn it. It didn't. It's quite surprisingly hard to do. <laughs> so just tell me a little bit about the circumstances around that. This was at school. Well, showing it? off. Showing off. Yeah, to some of my school, how shall I say, co-evils. Let's not call them friends. Uh, but it didn't work very well because it says I couldn't get the thing to catch fire. <laughs> That sounds like quite a strong uh, rebellion or reaction against no, faith, no? no? no. Strong rebellions are where you, you risk getting your head blown off, aren't they? I wasn't taking any any obvious material risks, which were the only kind I believed in at the kind at the time. Uh, the only kind I believed in at the time. So, no, I mean a lot of a lot of so-called rebellion is riskless uh, posturing, and I did a lot of riskless posturing. And was your abandoning of Christian faith similarly not particularly well thought out then? I should say it was it was reasonably well thought out. It was based on a desire to be entirely in command of myself. Uh, and it's I often point to the the passage in Somerset Morn's of human bondage in which Philip Carey, the hero, decides one day in I think in in, in Germany, in Heidelberg, that he just isn't going to believe anymore and he feels this huge sense of liberation. 
Now, he simply does not have all the obligations which have dogged him up till now. He can do what he likes. The, the, the first and only commandment of atheism is do what thou wilt, uh, which meshes very well with the modern, uh, the, the modern belief in personal autonomy. Who's going to tell me what I do with my own body, what I can put into it? Uh, which is now almost a universal view, and that it's it's very, very liberating if that's what you want to do, and if you have no conception of the world beyond uh, the immediate consequences of your actions, largely for yourself. So, what brought you back? Because this wasn't the end of the story. Oh well, this is another set of boring cliches, isn't it? I had uh, I got married and I had children, and it, it's both it's both extremely obvious uh, and and deeply personal. So. I don't discuss it because the the simple point that 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 having children and, and marrying makes you grow up or ought to make you grow up uh, is so obvious and because the details of how this happens are too personal both for me and the other people involved for me to talk about in public. But surely something there has to be some kind of explanation as to how you went from atheist to Christian. I understand well, of course, explanation. I mean, it, it, you, the, both of them are opinions uh, which you arrive at by reason. But the, the but do the, the, you, though? The, the discovery, is it reason? Oh, completely. Is it entirely, did you entirely reason well, your way back re, into no, Christianity? Re, but re, the, 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 they're reasons which bring you to a chosen belief, and the choice of belief is driven by desire. Uh, when I was a, 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 a childless um immensely, olympically selfish teenager, uh, I desired to believe things which suited me. Uh, I later discovered that it was actually impossible to be that person anymore, and that it, that it actually rather revolted me anyway. So I needed to, to seek some other belief, and I reasoned myself through my desires into a belief that the universe is created, designed, and purposeful, and that what I do here matters somewhere else. Mm. Suits me now. Yeah. But that's how you that's how you arrive at belief. It's not people say, "Oh, I can't believe." I can't. I say, what do you mean you can't believe? Anybody can believe anything if they choose to believe it. Uh, you, what do you mean when you say I can't? Is that I won't? I don't wish to. I don't. I'm I'm disturbed, as many people are by the isn't that by, an interesting, by the idea that, as I said, what we do here matters somewhere else. Isn't that an interesting omission though that it suited you, so you went well, back it's, to? It's, it. I just tell the truth about these things. There's no, I don't. There's, there's no point in in, 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 in pretending otherwise. It suited me. It suits me now. I chose it because yeah. I, I think that, uh, that 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 I prefer it. But also, as a Christian, presumably you believe that some things are objectively true, such as the existence of God. Whether no, it I suits can't. You I can't not. establish that. You I can't couldn't. Establish if someone asked me to prove objectively the existence of God, not asking you to prove, I couldn't it. do it. Well, then it isn't objective, is it? It's, I, I can't do that. I can I can say to people why they might. I can argue why they might choose to believe that uh, that they say the universe has a purpose. And, uh, and contains justice, and why they might desire it. But I can't make them desire it, and I can't say to them, this is, you have no choice but to believe this. Mm. The default position of the thinking person about these things has to be agnosticism. You will not get beyond agnosticism if you don't desire to. Uh, the atheist desires furiously for there to be no God, is terrified by the idea, in, in, in my view, that there is a God and that the universe has a purpose. And, and therefore revolts against it. The, the believer has the opposite. Mm-hmm. So you wanted, you wanted there to be a God. There oh, was very a desire much. I there. still do, yeah. But if you desire there to be a God, that only gets you as far as monotheism. That doesn't take you to Christianity. No, but then, but then of course, people will say to me, well, if you'd been brought up in a Muslim country, would you have ended up as a Muslim? And I have to say, well, very probably, yes, but I wasn't, so I didn't. So it's not really much of an argument. I don't, uh, I don't go around um, disparaging other people's faiths. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the contrary, I, I'm an inclusivist, so I, 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 I would often find I have, although I would disagree profoundly with several of the tenets of Islam, I would I would often find I would have a lot more in common in the profound things with a, with a Muslim than I would with, uh, with 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 an atheist. So that's I, I just I, I won't get involved in uh, yeah. say in disparaging other faiths. I'm fascinated. The only faith I disparage is that of atheism because <laughs> I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a grave mistake for people to to cast aside uh, this, this yes. is in, yeah in and I'd love to go on it, and it leads to it leads it can be shown practically in my view to lead yes. to terrible things I'd love to go on and talk a, a bit more about atheism in detail but before we get there I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea of, of the role that reason plays 
uh, played in bringing you to faith, but continued to, to play. And, well, and taking me away through. from it as well. I thought myself out of it. I thought myself back into sure. it. Sure. And with that in mind, what do you think are the strongest arguments for God? And conversely, what are the strongest arguments for atheism? Because clearly there are arguments. Well, on it's the sides. old Immanuel Kant, isn't it? It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the, the stars burning in the sky and the conscience burning within. Conscience is a very hard thing to explain. Uh, if 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 there is no if if there is no God, and the universe is a very hard thing to explain. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is this enormous, intricate, ever expanding structure around us uh, operating to extremely fine tolerances? Uh, if nobody put it there, and it, the old down in in, in the in, in the southern states of, of, of the USA, people can say if you. If you find a turtle on top of a fence post, you can be pretty sure it didn't get there by accident. It seems to me to be a good principle. And the weak, and the strongest arguments for atheism are there any? Well, the, I say the arguments for atheism come from within the person rather than from from the universe. The person says uh, that he he finds the the idea that this is a design and purpose of the universe re- repulsive for various reasons, and we can guess what those are. If you've been as wicked as I've been in my life, then it's not very hard to guess. Uh, you don't want there to be justice in the universe. So in that case, you will jump at any uh, any theory that, that supports your view. And you're not given, you can't, there is no place you can go to apply it where they can say, actually, you're right or you're wrong, you win a prize. You can maintain this. No one can prove that you're wrong, so you can stick with it for your entire life, and many people do. But it's a, it, 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 whereas the, I think the, the, the pressures to believe come largely from without, observing how the universe is. Though, as I say, conscience is this f- fantastic mystery, which I think I, I've not really heard uh, a proper atheist dismissal of conscience. I mean, otherwise you might, you might as well believe that your liver is telling you what to do. Uh, but the, the pressure from within in the atheist, I do not want this to be true. Mm. I really, and some atheists, such really intelligent and thoughtful atheists, such as Thomas Nagel, uh, will say, "Why is it that I so much want there to be no God?" He doesn't really answer it, or hasn't where I've seen him answer it. But he he does admit that this is a powerful question in his mind. Yeah, yeah. You just described yourself as wicked. You said you've been wicked in your oh, life. Absolutely, yes. I was. I, I mean, many people think I'm a terrible person now, and who am I to dispute it? But uh, by comparison with, with with now, I was much, much worse. What did you do? I'm not telling you. Why not? Because it's none of your business, and I don't. Uh, it, it wouldn't just embarrass me, I, which is, is getting increasingly difficult to do as I get older. It would embarrass other people. Mm. Is it fair to say you're more comfortable talking about subjects and topics than you are perhaps your your personal life. Well, isn't everybody? I mean, I don't. Some people may enjoy confessing their their, their most embarrassing and stupid actions. I and mean, the the vision of hell, uh, we all have one. The, the the most persuasive one that I ever heard was being rotated slowly on a spit while being played in front of all your enemies. Videos of all the stupidest things you ever <laughs> did in your entire life for all eternity. Yes. A lot of the things that I did are, of course, deeply embarrassing as well as, as, well as wrong and stupid. So there's a I, don't, I don't want to replay them. <laughs> there is, I, mean, I, I remember them to this day. They might be 40 <laughs> years ago. I can still stop, or well, longer, I can still stop in the street and wince at the memory of them. And there's no, the, 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 in the, um, the confession in the, the prayer book service of the Lord's Supper, uh, has it go, the, the, the burden of them is intolerable. Um, the, mem- the remembrance of them is grievous unto us, and that this grows more so as as they get further away, and and of course the further away they get, the more you realise you can't, you, they're done, you did them. There is no there's no possibility of undoing them, and therefore without divine grace, then you really are completely done for. You said some interesting things already about. Um what what brought you back to to faith and and I think you said as well you can't objectively prove the existence of God. How do you? I've th- never seen it done. How do you think about faith and doubt? It's been said before that faith and doubt are two sides of the same coin. Well, it's it's it's, it's Tennyson, isn't it? That lives more faith in honest doubt. Believe me, than in half the creeds. Who 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 doesn't doubt? Mm. What thinking person doesn't doubt? What what have been your biggest doubts when it comes to well, the faith? simple doubt of whether is it all true or not? Yeah. 
And is that a constant thing, or...? No, because occasionally one has... There are, I have to say there are certain bits of holy writ, supposedly, when I look at them, I think, crikey, this is, a, this is stretching it a bit. <laughs> I'm not sure I can really subscribe to that, but fortunately the creed is quite vague, so I don't actually have to, for instance. Be, you don't have to cross I'm your not, fingers I mean, while I, saying the I, would, I find the, 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 the book of Revelation pretty hard to take, and some parts of the Acts of the Apostles um, hard to do, for instance. I just, you can't, some of it is tough. And uh, and there it is, especially if you have a skeptical turn of mind. Of course, anybody, uh, it seems to me, who thinks will doubt. Yes. And if you, if you say you don't, then either, you, either you're incredibly incurious or you're not telling the truth. Apart from anything else, where is the enemy going to concentrate his, his activity? This is why churches are so riven with stupid political struggles as well. Where is the enemy going to concentrate his action except at the heart of belief? What does church look like for you at the moment? I don't quite know what you mean by that question. What church do you go to? What I does... attend a church in Oxford, um, which is more or less um, a traditional broad Anglican type. Do well, I mean, what matters to me very much, and is, is extremely important to me, is that it is, is that the the uh, the prayers of the 1662 book are used, and the authorized version of the Bible are used, mm. because I think truth is beauty, and beauty is truth. And it, for the, the the Church of England's vandalization of its own of its own scripture and uh, and prayers over the past 60 years has been a grotesque mistake. Mm and has driven, I think, many people away from faith and kept many people away. If you go to church, it ought to be beautiful. It, it might be frightening as well, but it ought to be beautiful. And if it isn't beautiful, then, it, then I think the church is likely to fail. Not everyone finds beauty in the same thing, though. I disagree, actually. I think there's an absolute... I wish one, one could find it, but I think there is an absolute in beauty. I think anybody, I, I defy anybody to say that the paintings of Vermeer are not beautiful. Um, but when it comes to or faith... The, or the, 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 uh, the, the language of the authorised version of the Bible, they, they just are beautiful. They're full of poetry, and as a result, they mean uh, so much more than the flat uh, paraphrases which are nowadays uh, offered in their place. Mm. Uh, and not only do they mean much more, they're, they're much more powerful when spoken aloud, which is important in church, and they are much more memorable. And all these things are, it seems to me, to be objective measures of, the, of their beauty. I think that the, the, there is an objective measure. Who can, who can say that... Uh, an objective who, measure who can, of beauty. Who can say that St Paul's Cathedral is not more, more beautiful than the Shah? But is there an objective measure of beauty? Yes, because, because it's a beauty originates in truth and truth originates in God. So you can have an objective measure of beauty, but you can't objectively prove the existence of God. Well, I think one of the things which tends to suggest the existence of God is the, is, is the existence of beauty. So, um, on, just quickly on the... I couldn't give you a formula for beauty. <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't I ask could, you for one. But I think, I think I, it, there, there, is a, there is a point that you, you do know it when you see it, hear it, feel it. Yes. Uh, just, just quickly on the Church of England, because it has been all over the news in recent weeks of this prayers for same-sex couples, blessing of same-sex couples, which um, we have already seen splits in the Anglican Communion worldwide on this issue of sexuality with large parts of the Global South saying we cannot be in communion with a, with a church that teaches in their view what is contrary to scripture. And you now have people in this country saying I cannot go to a Church of England church if they are going to practice something that runs counter to my understanding of scripture. What's your take on that? Oh, I ignore it completely. It's an elephant trap uh, designed to make conservatives look like bigots. And the simplest thing to do is just to ignore it. It's it, the, the, the far, far more important than, than, than these issues is the fact that the church abandoned its defense of heterosexual marriage many years ago. And if you're really worried about these things, then you should try and campaign for the church to re, uh, to, to chuck aside a dreadful 1960s document it produced called um, Putting Asunder and return to its proper belief in, in lifelong heterosexual marriage. The, the fates of millions of, of heterosexual marriages uh, go un... Uh, uh, the epidemic, pandemic of divorce followed by the growing epidemic of people who never got married in the first place is so much more important than this and so much more the, the, the point. Uh, 
So the church. That's what, that's what you should be worried about. This is a this, this is this is a say it's an elephant trap, which other people can lumber into if they want to. <laughs> I'm not. I, I, I will just but lumber I've, around it. I've read I've read your views on this already, and it is true that you have pretty consistently made this point that in your view the church wing made. Uh, a large mistake here on heterosexual marriage, and yep. you want to see that solved that is, before there's that any is other the, debate. But this is a side. This is such a tiny side issue. Do you know how many uh, civil partnerships and then um, and then same-sex marriages took place after the enormous rows about whether they should be legalised? Compared with the numbers, of it, it's tiny. Mm. It's 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 simply not. It, it, as I say, it's one of those issues on which the church can pull itself to pieces, and, and who will be pleased by that? Yes. So for you, divorce should not have been allowed in. Well, the the, the civil divorce has existed for a long time, and the Roman Catholic Church has permitted annulment. Uh, but the the actual wording of the the marriage service of the 1662 book requires uh, those who married to to, to marry till death. Does them part, and there is no uh, there is no warrant for any other form of marriage, and the church uh, other people uh, can can as say the civil divorce is is, uh, is permitted, and uh, for those who don't believe that, but if the church wants to uphold a standard, that's one of the standards it should uphold, and if you look back at the document, it's a, I discuss it in my my nineteen ninety nine book, The Abolition of Britain, uh, called Putting Asunder, in which the church pretty much gave away the ground on that back in the 60s. And then you can see what, what seems to be a major retreat mm. because the Roman Catholic Church didn't do that. Yes. That was one of the reasons why I think it, 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 it flourished by contrast to the Church of England for some time. But it is, it's, a hard, uh, it's a hard line to hold and defend. But it seems to me to be immeasurably more important than these, than these, than these rows that, that we have now. I've often wondered if the reason this doesn't have more discussion certainly within the church is because it is a personal issue that a number of people in church leadership will have their own experience of namely Indeed, yeah. namely divorce and so it's very difficult well, that's to the point is that once you've once you've given way on this yes. then so many people will have been divorced that it will become rather than a a moral issue it will become a personal issue in which you're discussing the personal behavior of yes. somebody who you're in the same room with and it, it's it's that's one of the reasons why uh, powerful moral rules uh, shouldn't be t cast aside lightly because it's they, something which has been maintained and constructed over two millennia can be destroyed in an afternoon yeah. and then very, very hard to reconstruct. But if, any, if, if, if the church isn't going to stand up for lifelong marriage, which is written into its own, uh, into its own scripture and liturgy, then who else is? And so by the same token, if it is difficult for some leaders to talk about this because their own personal experience, you are able to talk about this because you have been married to one woman for... But I'm not going to because it's not I'd absolutely... I'm absolutely not going to try and offer myself as an example of anything. To no, I'm not suggesting that, but I'm saying you, there is a sense in which we rightly should practice what we preach. Well, we should. And but so I mean, I you don't, can I, talk but, about no, this issue the, because you are not one of the many leaders who have been through this yourself. It, it, the, half the problem with... Uh, with the marriage laws which were introduced in the 1960s in this country is that uh, the they leave those who wish to remain married completely unsupported by law and then unsupported also by custom and so it is it, it is in what way well in any it's a very simple point if you if you go to the county court because somebody hasn't paid you for a job you did for them then what the law will say is that this is a tort that the, the person should have paid you, that the law states that the promise was made to pay you, it wasn't made, therefore the court will, will, will fine for you, and the person didn't pay you will be ordered to pay. In the case of marriage, where two people make a solemn promise to stay together for life, and one of them breaks it, and they go to court, the court will back the, the, the person who has broken the contract. It's the only area of law in which this has happened. The law since the late 60s in this country has openly supported tort in marriage. You're completely on your own if you want to uphold it. It's incredibly difficult for people to do. I have huge sympathy for people whose marriages break because the whole weight of society is, is, it presses down on them as if they were a submarine broken at the bottom of the sea and, and, the, and, the, and the, 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 they have it's not a matter of choice the pressure destroys mm -hmm. what they wish to keep and this is what the church should have defended them against by, by, by saying on this matter uh, we are not going to support it
Yes. And that the, a marriage in church, you, you can make a civil marriage and you, can, and you can treat your marriage as a civil marriage, even if it was a church marriage. But a marriage in church is, as far as we're concerned, unbreakable. And we will not, under any circumstances, uh, for instance, marry somebody uh, who is already married to a living person. E- even on the really hard cases? Even on the really hard cases, because that or... is where moral... Yeah, you, th- th- people forget divorce is not, is, is, is not permission to leave. If you, if you want to leave, you can leave. Divorce is permission to remarry. There are two different things. You can't, there's no law which can, which can force two people to live together who can't stand each other. Sure. But the rules have to say that you can't say, you can't make the same pledge twice. Uh, of, that's in the nature of the marriage pledge. You can't do it because you've said this is for life. You can't then go back into the same place and, and uh, when, when the person who you said that to is still alive and say, I'm going to marry you for life. Am what I, does that make you? Am I right in thinking you're celebrating a big anniversary this year? I don't know. <laughs> I like From what I've read, you've been married a long time and there might be a big, yeah, but a big I just, number I, coming I up. I just am not discussing these things. You don't want to mention... No, I just don't. It's not. It's 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 only my business. Sure, of course it is. But the reason I bring it up... Yeah, I can see I, why you bring it up, but I but, you can equally well see... Well, I'm I haven't just, finished, I, I haven't just, finished no, the point. No, but I'm not talking about it. But the reason I bring it up, I was going to say... Whatever reason you bring up. Well, it is because we're talking about marriage and divorce, and presumably but the I'm two not, of us would agree... I'm hang not, on, but let me ask the question. I'm not a minister, I'm not a minister of religion. Let me ask I'm the question, Peter. I'm not a or an exemplar. I'm just an ordinary backslide sinner, and my personal life... I wouldn't offer as an example to anybody. I'm not suggesting you should. The reason I asked the question is because both of us are married people, and I'm assuming, I'm going to make an assumption here, but let me get to the question. I'm assuming both of us would say that marriage has many joys, and it's also something that from time to time can require work. And so what I'm trying to ask you is, as someone who has been married longer than me, what have you learnt about the institution of marriage, about yourself, in your relationship, because there would have been things I've over learned a long that all, time. That when, I, when I was a reporter on the Sunday Evening Advertiser back in the 1970s, the, the most junior reporter in the in the office, which I was, had to go out one of the, your duties and interview people who were celebrating their golden weddings. And still in the 70s, a lot of people did this. And the question you always had to ask, ask them was, well, how have you managed to stay together for, for so long? And they would always nod to each other, and then they would say, give and take. And what I've learned is they were right. Very good. See, see, you cannot, you can't, you can't answer a personal question after all. No, I didn't answer a personal question. I told you what people told me in, in the 1970s. But you said that Swindon, you, I, I think they were right. You think they were right? Yeah, so that is I thought a, that at is the time, answer. I thought at the time it was a cliche. Now I know it's it, it's a cliche because it's true. Now you know it's true, indeed. Uh, some Christians are concerned about the way we are now perceived by an increasingly, arguably secular society. And let me give you a couple of examples. Recently, somebody was arrested for praying in their head outside an abortion clinic because of some buffer zone legislation that was brought in. Um, There's a mainstream Christian campaigning group that was described in one of the national newspapers recently as shadowy, which anyone listening to this would not describe as shadowy, would describe as normal mainstream uh, Christianity. Are you in any way concerned about how Christians are perceived in society? And is there a kind of, not just a misunderstanding of us, but increasingly people trying to crack down on, on Christianity. Is that a concern of yours in any way? Well, it's a concern, but I think it's something we have to learn to accept and, uh, and live with because we have lost the primacy which we used to have and therefore all the comfortable things of being an established religion have gone. Uh, I was asked on a television show in Australia some years ago what was the most dangerous idea you could come up with, and I said it was the idea that, that Jesus Christ uh, was the son of God and that he rose again on the third day after crucifixion. These are fantastically dangerous, subversive ideas, and in a society which hasn't been introduced to them in many cases, uh, they will be seen as, uh, as, as revolutionary and dangerous. I suppose in a way you could take a pleasure in the fact that that was now recognized, that it's only right that we are a, we are actually a subversive group which sets itself against the, the selfishness and rapacity uh, and, gr- and organized greed of so much of our society. Well, well and good, if uh, take advantage of it, you can't, we aren't going to go back to being the established religion, so we might as yeah. well rejoice in being revolutionaries. So for you, it's not about campaigning against this, it's actually about accepting it. Well, I think if you if you if you listen to the words of the, of, of the Magnificat at, at Evensong, he hath put down the mighty from their seats, he hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. It's a fantastically subversive uh, piece of uh, piece of poetry, and 
it's it, perhaps it's time we were remembered again for being subversive of society, which so many people around us mm. quite rightly regard with increasing skepticism. The filthy rivers, the uh, the, the, the the immense greed of, uh, of of the of the hedge fund vampire squid world which surrounds us. So let it be made plain. We're against that. We're not the establishment and take advantage of it. There's no point in trying to get back to where we were in the Victorian age because it's not coming back. Too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories. It's time for a more rounded perspective. It's time to discover Premier Christianity. Balanced, confident, relevant, faith-filled. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide-ranging stories that impact the church. Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe at premierchristianity.com. Now only five pounds for three months. Moving on then, there's been an explosion in what's been termed social action by the church. Now obviously the church for all of its history has done these sorts of things, but in more recent years there's been more of a focus on it. There's been more good news stories about the church in its social action work. Uh, and yet I read that you are perhaps not always a fan of social action by churches. Where did you read that? that? I read that in an interview. Really? Yes. Yeah. I can't remember the, ever saying anything rude about the, food banks or, <laughs> or, or, or helping the helping the distressed. Well, sometimes there's an objection that um, the church should do the churchy stuff, the spiritual stuff, and well, shouldn't immerse but, itself but, in politics. But, but, uh, in politics is, is, is an entirely different thing. But no, I, it's uh, I don't think I'm. But I, so you're I, in favour of the church doing absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, that uh, faith without works is is, is valueless. I'm a great uh, great enthusiast for the for the Epistle of James which I recommend to everybody is the short, <laughs> shortest introduction and the most frightening passage of scripture I think ever ever written, particularly for people in my trade. Why frightening? The tongue is a fire. Mm. You know that passage? I do. Yes. And because of the nature of your work as a columnist, it requires you to be very opinionated, perhaps, well, certainly critical of others. So how do Well, no, that's not true. I no? became a columnist because I am opinionated. I didn't become a columnist no, to develop course. opinions because the editor said, hey, Hitchens, let's have some opinions on this. But the point is, is there a tension between what it says in James and your day job? Well, there's a tension between the Gospels and, and, and normal life because you, you live in in the normal world, in the, in the sinful city in which we all live, and you you can't always immediately make the correct judgment about what was the best thing to have done, and you will often make quite serious moral mistakes as a result. We aren't all gifted with the instinctive ability to know what's right at the time. In fact, that's the problem, isn't it? You think it's right at the time, and then you look back on it ten years later, and you realize it was a dreadful mistake. If you learn anything from that, it's that what you're doing now might be a mistake. Right. What have been the areas in which you got it wrong? What have been the areas in which I got it wrong? You're trying to get, but I'm not, I don't, in terms of, I, for a while, I, I, I took the Conservative Party seriously as a political organisation. That was a great mistake. Why? Well, because it isn't a serious political organisation. It's not Conservative. Why isn't it Conservative? Well, you have to ask them, but it, it's a demonstrable flat fact that it's not. Well, I'm asking you why it isn't. Well, isn't it obvious? I mean, you'll be asking me next, why is rain wet? I mean, what it, it produced some evidence for me that the Conservative Party has done a Conservative thing in the past 40 years. So for you, it's Conservative only in name, not in policy? That is correct, yes. And um, I guess for some time you were... Well, your, as you say, your opinion on the Conservative Party has changed. I found it interesting as well that you... Well, I once joined it, and this is a subject of great of great regret on my sure. part. Sure, so there's something that. you regret. I mean, you come across, and again, co columnists do, because it's by nature of the job, you, you come across in your opinions often, uh, I don't want to say certain, but but you, are, you, you come across as very sure of what you believe. Well, I don't say it until I have made myself pretty sure. I look into it and I take a decision. And especially when that decision leads me to, to break with the crowd, uh, which I don't do for the sake of it, then you need to, to make absolutely sure that your arguments are sound. Mm. What was it that attracted you, first of all, to journalism as a, as a career path at the beginning? Um, the mistaken view that journalism, it, for most of the time, is about writing. I'd always liked writing, but I'd, I'd, the... Um, the, my original purpose in becoming a journalist by trade was to advance the, uh, the socialist revolution, which I wanted to pursue at the time. Mm -hmm. 
And I mean, this is a huge topic which you have changed your mind on. I have, yes. But I, this is, I've gone over so many times that I thought I'd spare anybody. <laughs> it is well known. It's, it's well known how you... To the tedium of it. I, get, I guess I could summarise by saying both in terms of relig- religious views and political views, you have done an about turn, haven't you? You know, you... Yeah. Um, well, you could call it, yes. I've changed my mind, yes. Yes. Yeah. It, it strikes me today that politically when people say they've changed their minds, they're often just accused of U-turning rather than saying, well, that's good that you've changed no, 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 your mind no, no. and come to a different yes, view. Yes, well, nobody, uh, you, this is the thing you will very rapidly discover, nobody will ever applaud you for changing your mind. No, but we do, we, instinctively people want to because there's this understanding that if you've changed your mind, you've thought about the issues, you're no, serious, no you've grown up about it. There's, there's no, no understanding such understanding, no. It's, uh, it's a very small group of people who understand that. Most people will regard changing will will, will, will regard changing of the mind as, a, as often as a betrayal, uh, and it's you will lose friends if you do it. That's for sure, and you'll lose an entire milieu, and you'll be punished for it in various ways. And you're speaking from experience. I am speaking from experience. Yeah, don't regret it, but it's undoubtedly the case. You don't. You, if you seriously change your mind, it changes your life, and, and not necessarily it doesn't necessarily make it nicer. Is that painful when people disagree with you to that extent? Well, it's it's it's. it's I I am thick skinned, and if you want to be, excuse me, I'm thick skinned, and if you want to be, if you want to be rude to me about my opinions and stuff like that, well, feel free. It doesn't, I don't. But, but what's it's it's much more boring uh, than painful. Uh, having because what you tend to get from people who you used to agree with and don't agree with anymore, or indeed from people who disagree with what you say, is uh, misrepresentations of what you say and think being back at you, yeah. uh, and it's so tedious. You realise as you're doing it, uh, if, especially if it's if private and one to one. There's no point. They're not interested in what you actually think or say. Mm. They just want to to reaffirm their own opinions by yeah. by pretending that yours are other than what they are. If I can do it in public, say on on social media, then it's different because you have an audience and you can show that someone is not arguing honestly. But it's not. No, I, it's um, it's it's more boring than painful. Is there a question of having to understand who is just being a troll, who is just criticising you for the sake of it? But then also, who are those voices in your life who you think actually I need to be open to correction and, and criticism and learn from these people? Do you see that kind of divide in who you're listening to? Well, it depends on how they behave. Uh, it, it won't always be the same person. Uh, I operate what I call the presumption of intelligence. In any argument, I'll watch to see if somebody responds. Uh, to what I say. I don't mind if, if they respond by saying, but you're wrong because, uh, and then set out a cogent argument which I need to reply to. Uh, but they have to be responsive. It's to say they, you, there has to be some sign that they've heard what you said and that they need to re- mm-hmm. reply to it. If they just, if, if there are two responses, if someone, if you come up with an argument, say, if I, as I often do on the Russia-Ukraine issue, and I say, well, actually, the, your position is incorrect because such and such. And if they respond by saying, oh, well, that's just Kremlin propaganda, then I know that I'm wasting my time. If they say, well, actually, I, I'm, I, I, I disagree with, what, with your characterization of what happened in Kiev in 2014, and this is why, then I'm at least arguing with somebody who's interested in discussion. A lot of your work, again, necessarily, arguably by being an economist, involves pointing out what is wrong with the world and I love that you once described yourself as an Olympic standard pessimist. Why do you think that is? No, pessimism is, is one of the great pleasures of life. Uh, I, I love being a pessimist and, uh, and I think I'm quite good at it. Uh, my favourite character in English literature is Eeyore and I think that, that pessimism is, is, is actually, people don't see it. I, I'm accused all the time of having no sense of humour indeed I have a certificate to that effect from the Federal Humorlessness Institute in Zaltzgitter <laughs> in the Federal Republic of Germany. Uh, but I have, uh, I, I tend to think pessimism is a very humorous attitude towards the world, uh, putting things in proportion. A basic sense of humor is a sense of proportion. And also in, in not having silly uh, faiths in things which don't deserve to so be trusted in. am I to deduce from this that there are occasions where you are being pessimistic and where actually there's a part of you that finds it funny 
and you're expecting people well, to laugh at the extent of that well, message. Well, I don't expect people to laugh because most people don't get it. And it, it, unless you're, you're a thoroughgoing, say, Olympic standard pessimist, you simply don't. And I've seen so many ridiculous uh, secular and material hopes collapse before your eyes. I remember when people were excited about there being a new Labour government in 1964, for goodness sake. Uh, There was a thing called the National Plan and all kinds of wonderful things were going to happen and and they didn't. And you you watch people being disappointed. Again and again, I see this. I remember when I was an industrial correspondent, leaders of industries and unions would gather together on platforms at press press conferences and say, we've agreed that we've finally reached peace in such and such an industry. And you know that within six weeks it it would be in the grip of the most terrible disastrous strike. Uh, it happens over and over again. I've watched it so many times that I don't, uh, I don't need any prompting anymore. <laughs> I mean, a, a less kind description to pessimist would be grumpy. Are you grumpy? No, I don't think so. I mean, I don't know what the word means, really. I don't. I, it, it, you, if I'm, I'm not, I'm not the person who, um, who sits there saying how wonderful all the time. But then who would want to be that person? Some people are. Well, they're, they're, I said, but who would want to be? I wouldn't want to be, but I'm not that person. I think some people do but want I don't, to be. Is I don't, there not I don't, a sense... I don't think... Uh, pessimism doesn't make you gloomy. Pessimism makes you... Pessimism is the key to, to, to happiness. You're, you're, you're never disappointed, often favorably surprised, <laughs> and always uh, at a humorous angle to life. I, don't, I really don't see why <laughs> everybody doesn't adopt it. <laughs> well, let me give you a... a uh, uh, perhaps a Christian response to that point, which is what do you do all those Bible verses about the joy of the Lord is your strength, or that uh, the fruits of the Spirit being one of them is joy? Is, is there is there not a contradiction there? No. Why not? Well, what's that got to do with what, what I think about the fact that my train is forty five minutes late <laughs> yet again? Well, because it, it's your de- your overall which demeanor, it will be your overall demeanor. You could argue your overall demeanor as a Christian is predicated on Jesus Christ really has risen from the dead. But and he really rise from the dead to make, to, to make, to make the trains, trains run, run on time. time. That's very true. But is there, not... there, are, there are deeper and, 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 but, and wider but issues which this affects. Absolutely. But in terms of just the, the grounding of my life as a Christian, I start from a position of uh, forgiveness, of salvation. Does that not affect my demeanour in any way? Well, I don't know. It depends. I mean, whose forgiveness are you thinking of? My own. Exactly. Well, I mean, that, that should be a matter of relief. Yes, surely. But it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, doesn't in bring my you case, joy. in my case, it will be a matter of relief if I manage to get forgiven. Yeah, <laughs> and no doubt, joy abounding. Yeah, but it, you know, as, as the man said when asked if he'd been saved, said, "Well, perhaps." And then uh, was asked, "Well, why aren't you? Why aren't you doing as I do and running around the streets, exhausting him?" He said, "Well, it was such a narrow squeak <laughs> that I thought I should keep quiet about well, it." Well, put it this way: Are there any pessimists in heaven? I think it's full of them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I had deliberately not mentioned this name until the very end of the interview because I get the impression sometimes you don't relish the thought of talking about this person. But the late Christopher Hitchens. Was I, don't, still... I don't know why you get that impression. I, it's become a necessary part of my life. I can't. It, it, there's no point pretending he didn't exist. Sure. Uh, but the, when I've the, seen you, quiz... didn't have any influence over me. So of course. I, I'll cheerfully talk about but it. But I was very struck by the comment you made, where, where somebody sort of expressed surprise that you, your two brothers, and you'd grown up and come to such different views on all sorts of things, and you quite rightly pushed back and said, "But just because we're brothers, why would we?" Well, think quite. Why would you? We've had different lives. We have very different lives. Anyway, it's a different character. You, you, people who have children. Uh, must observe that, that siblings are often totally different yes. from each other. So why would that be a surprise? So somebody once said, "Well, how, how on earth does this person, mm. you, uh, how on earth are you connected with with this, this other person, Christopher Hitchens, who I admire so much?" I said, "Same parents. Any other questions? <laughs> uh, what, what 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 do you want? Yes. Do you, do we were, even if we were identical twins, we would have different have approaches different thoughts, to some yes. things. And we we certainly weren't identical twins." Yes. So for those who aren't aware, Christopher was uh, well known as one of the four horsemen of the new atheism. And you obviously publicly expressed completely different views on that point. You both wrote books arguing your case. I'm interested in how much of that public argument ever happened in private. Was well, that I didn't have much to do with him, you see. I mean, by that time, he was, he was living in Washington, D.C., and I was living in this country. When even when we lived, I was in the Washington suburbs, and he was in the centre of the city. Even then, I wouldn't see him all that much because we were brothers, mm. 
uh, and not particularly close brothers and never had been particularly close. So I, the idea yeah. that we, we, we would rush to each other's houses to spend long hours discussing the Holy Trinity uh, <laughs> in our spare time, it, neither of us would have found that particularly appealing. Do, do, you think the media, do you think the media was ever guilty of sort of making more of a rivalry or a disagreement than was actually there? Well, I, I don't mind. It, 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 it enhances the Hitchens brand. It suits me if people want to make a thing out of it. I don't mind. It, it's um, it, 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 in a fascinating yes. way. Uh, my brother has led quite a lot of people to me, if only because they were searching for him on YouTube and found me by accident. <laughs> Nonetheless, the experience would not have come their way if it hadn't been for him. Yes. So I don't mind that. Uh, it, it's um, it's it, it's not a if if I don't know whether you've got brothers or sisters, but they 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 dog your steps. Uh, during your entire life in various, <laughs> various ways, and, and that's the way it's bound to be. I, this brings me to something we said right back at the beginning when we were talking about the importance of reason and thinking through your faith and wanting it to be true. For, for me, you and Christopher illustrate how you can have two very intelligent, very well-read people and come to two completely different points of view on, on all sorts of things, but, but especially perhaps the existence of God. Yeah, of course. But on the other hand, to the extent I'm not particularly well read myself, I have to say, but to the extent that that, uh, that he was well read, I imagine he he was well read in things which led him to the conclusion he very much wanted and had wanted uh, to pursue since he was quite young. I mean, in his memoir, he goes on about how um, one of our teachers at the school we attended on the edge of Dartmoor had uh, had uh, had. Had made some remarks about the uh, about the colour green and its significance. Uh, he knew, he says in the book, he knew that she was wrong. Uh, and of course, he, he didn't know that she was wrong. He thought she was wrong, and he's thought ever since that she was wrong. But he didn't know. But he decided very, very young that this was this was how it was going to be. Mm. On a lot of other things, as well. And uh, and there it is: his temperament, and of course the kind of life that he chose to live and wanted to continue living. And uh, if as, as I always say that the, the, the this argument is is entirely one of choice. What do you want to believe? The idea that you can you can you can have uh, if you could get I don't know whether this ever happened Thomas Nagel and William Lane Craig or someone in, in 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 the same room debating the idea that one of them could win and at the end of it everybody would file out of the of the auditorium saying oh right oh, that's it then God doesn't exist or essentially oh right then that's it. God does exist. It won't happen. It can't. It can't be done. No debate does that. It just mm. affirms people in what they believed already. Uh, if the quality of, of one debater is is greater than that of the other, then more people will say, "Well, he smashed him, or he he was smashed by." But it doesn't make any difference. The thing remains a matter of choice, and choice is driven by desire. And if you desire God, you will find Him. It's a lovely place to end it. If you desire God, you'll find Him. Peter Hitchens, thank you so much for talking to me. My pleasure. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview. I certainly did. Uh, you've been listening to the Profile podcast. Been wonderful to have your company. If you did enjoy that conversation, I'd love it if you could give us a rating and a review wherever you're currently listening to this podcast from right now, because it helps other people to discover the show. So please do that. A rating and a review would be really helpful. Thanks again for listening. Have a wonderful rest of your week, and we'll see you soon. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.